This is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. So Between Two Gardens has been interesting so far, yes? I would say good, but it's also been very challenging. And that is a good thing, ultimately. We want to be a church that's more about transformation than just inspiration, right? That's stolen from Change Church in Jersey, Darius Daniels. But it's true for us here, too. More about how we think, because we're renewed by the renewing of our minds. We want to change how we think. Growing people change. And so we have to, to do these challenging messages sometimes. In fact, today... We're going to read a story about how Jesus delivered a challenging message to his hometown. But first, let's just a little recap. Our our very first week of Between Two Gardens, we talked about the Garden of Eden, the first garden, right? And how God had created a perfect place for us to thrive. He gave us purpose and everything we needed to get the job done. We, however, rebelled, didn't we? Humankind rebelled. We thought we knew better. We wanted to know more and be more like God. And so we chose to mess that all up. But even still, he had a plan. Even in the very beginning, he had a plan to fix it and to give us life and life abundantly. All throughout history, we can see this pattern of God giving us life back. Um, Humility and gentleness come from God in those moments, not harsh anger. We see him restoring us with dignity over and over and over again. By repenting and confessing and forgiving ourselves, we can unlock his promises again in our life. Last week, the second week of Between Two Gardens, Jason spoke about some of the evil that can be done to us in the world, evil we don't choose, and how God can help us confront that move on from it, and find life and life abundantly again. And so this third week, you know, we talked about the first garden. The series is called Between Two Gardens. I really wanted to talk about the last garden, the paradise that we get to go to, that Jesus promised when the Son of Man returns, we're going to get to live in what Revelation calls a paradise, right? However, God kept pulling me back to this passage we're going to read in Luke today, just kept pulling me back. And it struck me that when people asked Jesus about the kingdom of God and when it would come and where it would be and who would get to serve by his side in that kingdom, Jesus also kept pulling them back to the present. He spoke about the kingdom of God often, but what he spoke about was often that the kingdom of God is completely different than you think it's going to be. It's nothing like what you think it's going to be. I keep calling it the upside down kingdom because it feels like everything he spoke and lived was completely opposite from what we think life should be, how we feel life should be. Our opinions and our feelings, just Jesus just obliterates them and says the opposite of everything. He, he tried to explain it to us and he did it masterfully using examples from everyday life. He, he tried to explain the kingdom of God being about hidden treasure or a mustard seed or managing business accounts receivable. At one point, he talks about it. It's like a business transaction. It's like, a, like inviting guests to a wedding celebration. I mean, he used all of these 
everyday examples in life to try to explain what the kingdom of God was all about. And he lived it, too. He lived this life that was so countercultural from the religious leaders of the day. In fact, we're still talking about his life 2,000 years ago because he not only preached, but he practiced what he preached. People came from all over to hear him speak. He often did the opposite of what they thought he was going to do, said the opposite of what they thought he was going to say. He, at one point, they shooed the children away from him. Do you remember the story? And what did he do? Invited them closer, rebuked them for shooing them away. They stayed far away from tax collectors' parties. And what did he do? Invited himself in, right? They thought he would ride into Jerusalem in the end like a king on a white horse and go right to the government and overthrow it and take over. But what did he do? Came in on a donkey, rode straight to the temple, and overthrew some tables right? They thought he should use the money from the expensive perfume poured over his feet to feed the poor. Don't accept that lavish gift. Take it and feed the poor. But he did accept the lavish gift and praise her for it. They expected him to condemn the woman caught in adultery because by the law, she deserved to be stoned to death. But what did he do? With kindness and mercy, he melted that whole crowd away and showed kindness and mercy to her while still acknowledging her sin. He always does the opposite of what we think he's going to do. In the, in the very end, they wanted him to defend himself. His disciples wanted him to speak up, defend himself. But he chose to stay quiet. His hometown expected him to heal all their diseases and exalt them above all the other towns and especially the Gentiles. But he rebuked them instead. Jesus always seems to do the opposite of what we think he's going to do. And that's actually the story we're going to today about his hometown. But first, let me just illustrate this point a little bit further because we have to understand a little bit about the kingdom of God that Jesus taught to understand the story we're going to read today. He taught to become a leader. How do you become a leader? You build fame, right? You build followership. You almost trick people into coming to follow you. You have to, to build your brand, right? These are all the things we still think today. We have to push other people down so that we can rise. But Jesus taught to become a leader, become a servant first. Matthew 20 says, Jesus says, the rulers of this world lord their power over people, but you will be different. Whoever wants to be first has to be last. The Son of Man came to serve people. If you want to become a leader, be a servant first. He also taught that to truly find life, die to yourself. Matthew 16 He's telling his disciples, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. We, again, we think the opposite, right? We think that we have to chase life, that life is found in having as many sexual partners as possible, right? That's really living. Or life is found in having the most amount of money 
possible, right? If I just win the lottery, then we'll live, right? I will sit on the beach drinking Mai Tais and go into the casino at night. We'll serve ourselves. That's like the ultimate American dream. We don't teach purpose enough. Serving others is where we find our purpose, not serving ourselves. To truly find life, Jesus taught, die to yourself. He also taught that to get back at your enemy, love them. Again, very opposite from what we often think, right? Eye for an eye, right? We get to pay them back with revenge, and we're not going to feel fulfilled until they've felt the same pain that we have felt, that they've inflicted upon us. And yet, Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even the corrupt tax collectors and pagans, they do that much. They love people who love them. I called you to be different, right? Romans 12 says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Kill them with kindness, right? It's the kill them with kindness concept. To get back at your enemy, you love them. Love them. Jesus also taught to become rich, you give money away. Doesn't make sense to our natural way of thinking. To come, become rich, you give money away. And I put four verses on the screen for that one because we, we tend to um, have an okay time with the rest of them. But money is a different story. In fact, tithing is often the last spiritual discipline most people conquer. Because it has so much to do with how we feed ourselves and our identity. And it's just hard to let go of and trust God fully and completely. But Luke 6 says, give and you will receive. Luke 16 says, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Money is meant to be a tool for you to serve others. To make friends. To help people. 2 Corinthians 9 says, God gives to you so it will produce a great harvest of generosity in you. That's why he gives it to you. Stop seeing the things that you've earned as yours and start seeing them as gifts, as blessings from God. And it becomes much more easy to be generous with it. Not lord it over people, but be generous with it. Matthew 6 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will give you everything you need. Doesn't say everything you want, but everything you need right? Seek him first. If there's one thing I know about following Jesus, it's that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to get pretty comfortable with being wrong. Most of us don't like to be wrong, do we? We do everything we can to not seem like we were wrong. But to be a follower of Jesus, you have to get pretty cozy with it. Because everything that I think and feel needs to come underneath of what God thinks and feels. Everything that I think and feel has to be examined through the lens of the word. I can't quite trust my emotions and my feelings. Because if they don't line up with the word, I need to make them line up with the word. And I've become very comfortable with being wrong. Now Luke 4 is where we're going today. Now these guys... The, the village of Nazareth is who we're talking about today. And they were not comfortable with being wrong. And they definitely didn't understand the upside down kingdom, the nature 
of following Jesus. And so we're going to start in verse 14. I'm going to give you the context of this passage as we go through it, because I think it'll help us understand what's actually happening here a little bit. So Luke 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee. This was in the sort of toward the very beginning of his ministry. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Remember that, because you need that context for the rest of the story. You also need that reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. So not only was he filled with the Holy Spirit's power, but they had heard he was coming. They had heard that he was doing miracles. The rumors had spread. They were anticipating his arrival. He taught regularly in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Should I read that one again? He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Why do we think we don't need to? Honestly, some people say, like, I don't, I'm a Christian. I'm, I follow God. I know I can follow Jesus without the church. Jesus didn't. He taught a lot outside the church, but he taught a lot in the church. And it says things like, he taught, as usual, in the synagogue. He was found as he usually was in the synagogue. He was at church a lot, ministered there a lot. He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Now, this was a pretty common practice in that culture and time. They sort of shared the responsibility of reading the scriptures and they sort of pass around the scroll and they would take turns reading it. So the scroll of Isaiah on this particular day was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. He unrolled the scroll in a random synagogue on a random Saturday and found the verse that he was looking for. You know, scrolls don't have page numbers, right? He knew that scripture well enough to find exactly what he was looking for. Jesus was a man of the word. He studied it. He knew it well. He lived his life by it. He found the scripture that he was looking for. And he read this particular scripture very intentionally. Because God is the God of intentionality. When he does something, he's doing something. So watch this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. That the blind will see. That the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now remember that he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and that they had heard he was coming. They had heard he was doing miracles, and they heard he spoke really well. And so if you can imagine this culture in this time, they knew what a messianic prophecy was. They knew that these scriptures were about the Messiah, and they knew they were still waiting on the Messiah. And so when they heard... Jesus, son of Joseph, was going around doing miracles. He was here in our hometown, and he said these particular verses, when handed the scroll of Isaiah, they were on the edge of their seats. Okay, can you feel that tension in the room a little bit? They knew he was about to say something important because they picked those verses, and it must mean something. So he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, And he sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, hanging on every word. They were waiting for what he was going to say next. And then he began to speak to them. And we only get a piece of what he spoke, I believe. I think he was speaking 
for a little while, but he said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. It was all good news. Remember, it's blind will see and oppressed set free and captives being released. It's all good news and it's being fulfilled this very day. Now, if they weren't listening before, they're listening now. Their ears are perked up. They're, they're ready to receive the good news that God has for them. And yet, Jesus doesn't really deliver good news. See, I think what's going on here is just because of knowing how Jesus behaves in other parts of the word, I think he was reading them just as much as they were reading him. They were looking at him intently, remember, and I think he was watching them intently too. See, every time throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus looking intently into the eyes of the people that he's about to heal, of the people that he's speaking to. It literally says he looked in his eyes intently or he, he at the, the one guy that he healed at the city gate, he said, look at me, look at me. There's a reason Jesus looked at people because he wasn't just treating them like another number, like another miracle, like another um, notch on his belt. He was looking at them intently because he loved them intently. He was reading their hearts, their souls, understanding who they were and what they were actually asking, not what they were necessarily physically asking. Remember that Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that he had all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He operated in them all perfectly. So he had words of wisdom, words of knowledge. He had discernment, right? He could see more than just the person standing in front of them. He could see their soul. And I believe as he read these particular verses, he was also reading them. And I think what he saw was pride based on what he says next. Where are we? Verse 22. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? As they're murmuring, they're, start to get, they're starting to get a little like... We knew this kid, this lanky kid growing up, running around our streets. We know him. He's from Nazareth like we are after all. Isn't, how can this be? Right? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Certainly there are many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Now, we might not understand all of the context here, but they did understand the context, and you'll see why in a minute. Jesus specifically brings up a portion of their history as a people where they did not get what they wanted from God, where they needed something, provision in this case, and God did not provide it and instead provided it to a foreigner, someone who was not God's chosen people. They were not God's favorites, okay? It's important to understand the context here because he goes even further in the next example, he says, And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, 
But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. I don't know if you remember, but Jason preached on Naaman a little while ago. And Naaman was not only a commander in an army, but a commander in the Syrian army, which was the enemy army. Naaman was the enemy. He came to a prophet of God, and God healed him. When many others in Israel weren't coming to the prophet, and they weren't getting healed. Think about this for a second, because Israel at this point was spoiled. They were the spoiled rotten brat that we've been talking about for weeks, right? They didn't get what they wanted from God. And what does a spoiled rotten brat hate more than not getting what they want? Somebody else getting what they want, right? They don't like it. And so here we see them throw a hissy fit instead of allowing the words from the savior of the universe to transform them from the inside out, they allow it to produce wrath. Because when they heard this in verse 28, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 purposefully. He was watching them as he read it, and he saw pride. And what does God do with the proud? He resists them. Yes? Because there are types of people that you cannot help. Even the Savior of the world cannot help. It's not because he can't. It's because they're unwilling to hear it. They don't think they need help. They couldn't hear it because they were prideful. Pride is so evil. It's so evil. It causes us to do the opposite of the thing that's good for us and our well-being and our health. It causes us to do the opposite in the name of ourselves. It doesn't make sense. We have to cast off pride like constantly. It works its way in in weird little ways, religious little ways. We have to cast it off because God resists the proud. They missed the Savior of the universe showing up on their doorstep because they were proud. They tried to kick him off a cliff. And he specifically brought up those two passages because he knew it would agitate them. I think hoping that it would change them, that they would see his point and say, oh, that's a good point. We should probably change our attitude here. But they didn't. And they tried to cast him off a cliff. Instead of letting a difficult message provoke thought and change and humility, it produced wrath because Naaman was the enemy. And how dare God give the enemy a miracle and not us? See, God had promised to take care of Israel's spiritual health. But what happens when taking care of someone's physical needs doesn't help them spiritually anymore. Let me say that again. What happens when taking care of physical needs is no longer beneficial to spiritual health? Does God place priority on the spiritual or on the physical? On the spiritual, right? Because God is not an enabler. We want God to be an enabler. We all understand the concept of enabling, right? We have enough addiction in our culture to understand that there comes a point when meeting someone's physical needs no longer helps them 
overall as a person. It doesn't help anymore. It actually makes it worse, right? Jesus was trying to call them out here. You want God to enable you. You're not going to him and submitting yourself to him and asking the God of the universe, the God of creation, to heal you. You're going everywhere else. Why should he heal you? It's not helping. God is not an enabler. Now, I do have to just give you a small caveat here because although God... Is not an enabler. He will sometimes answer prayers that should not be answered. And I say this because I preached a message a little while ago called um, Be Careful What You Pray For. Because there are examples throughout Scripture, and I'll just give you one to establish the point. But Pharaoh in Egypt, Nine times he said, no, I will not let my people go. Nine times the word says he hardened his heart. But the tenth time, the word says that God hardened his heart. And I had a problem with that the first time I read it. Like, why, God? Why would you harden his heart? Why would you help him along in that process? And God said nine times he had a chance. Nine times he said no. Nine times he hardened his heart. He was telling me what I wanted. I just gave him what I wanted in the end to stop the abuse, to stop the evil, to allow him to self-destruct in the name of my people. God will give you what you want. Sometimes be careful what you pray for. But I don't know how many chances I'm on in certain things, right? God's giving you a chance right now to repent. He's not an enabler. He's hoping you won't self-destruct. But in the end, he'll allow it to save the rest of the people. God is not an enabler. See, they tried to get rid of Jesus. He just moved to another town. He went to people that did want to hear the good news. That he could work miracles in People who did want to hear him. It was exactly his point, and it was exactly what they did. They missed it. People of Nazareth missed it because of pride. A lot of us here today have missed it. We're too busy being bitter, blaming the world, harboring unforgiveness. And so when the Savior of the universe steps on our doorstep, we miss it. We can't hear it. We have all of our walls up. We miss it completely. Jesus was comparing himself to great prophets that they looked up to. And he was comparing them to corrupt, idolatrous, and murderous enemies. They themselves had oppressors. Israel was in a time in history where they were once again being oppressed by the superpower that was Rome. They had come in. They were enslaving their children. They were taxing them beyond belief. Israel was not happy because God wasn't delivering them yet in their time and in their purposes. They had let fear and anger and bitterness in. And instead of turning to God, they turned to their religion. They became their own gods in their own eyes. We, we know that their ancestors dreamed of Gentiles joining them in worship. Psalms David's Psalms and the book of Isaiah talk about being a light to the world. That's why God chose them 
Have you ever wondered that? Why does God even have a chosen people if he loves all the people? He set up one nation among all the others so that he could use them as an example to the rest of the world, to draw the rest of the world to Israel, to him. That's why they were set up for that purpose and that purpose alone. It wasn't because they were special, but because he is special. And this is why God takes it so seriously when Israel rebels, because they're meant to be an example to the rest of the world. He needs to use them to show the rest of the world how good he is. And when they're rebelling, it messes it all up. So he takes it seriously. They didn't understand the upside down of his kingdom, that because they were leaders, they had to be better servants. To show the rest of the world how to find life, they had to die to themselves. They had to be more generous, more giving than everyone else, because with leadership comes responsibility. They couldn't see that. They had lost sight of why they were blessed to begin with. They thought it was because they were actually special, not because he is special and chose them to communicate that to the rest of the world. They forgot. They forgot. And this is what we've been talking about in this life between two gardens. Things aren't fair, right? We usually say that while we stomp our feet and nothing's fair. I ought to just give up now, right? If God would just be fair in giving out his blessings, we'd all be better off. The problem is, God, when you bring up fair with God, God says, do you you really want to talk about fair? How about all of the things that only you and I know about? How about all of the things that I should have punished you for, but haven't? See, we like grace and mercy as concepts when they apply to us. We don't always like them when they apply to others, especially our enemies, right? We want God to give us grace and mercy. We believe that we deserve it because we had good intentions, but not everybody else. How dare God give everyone else grace and mercy? And if we're actually honest with ourselves, we have to say that, yeah, life is not fair, but it's more more not fair in my favor than not. God gives me way more grace than I deserve, way more blessings than I deserve. He is a good God. If I don't have it, it's probably because I don't need it. He's given me what I do need. I have to stop letting the ick and the grime and the unforgiveness and the bitterness work its way into our heart because that bitterness and unforgiveness will only cause us to throw the Savior of the universe out. When he shows up at our doorstep, it will only cause us to miss him. Israel had made themselves their God. They had made their religion their God. They had made their opinions of themselves their God, and they couldn't hear God's opinion anymore. They worshiped their own cleanliness. Everything in the Jewish culture at that point was about being clean, right? Because you couldn't enter into God's presence. You couldn't offer sacrifices. There were certain things you could not do in that culture if you were not clean, Israel started to worship cleanliness instead of the God that created the systems to make them clean. They worshiped their own opinions 
about themselves, not the God who created them, that their own righteousness, they had become their own God. And when the actual God showed up, they couldn't hear him. They couldn't put the rest of the world's needs above their own because they thought they were better and more deserving. And so to suggest that anyone else, especially the Gentiles, might get a miracle over them was punishable by death. They became judge, jury, and executioner that day. Quick. It's amazing how a mob, a a crowd's opinion can change quick. Be careful of it. To serve our God, the one true God, is to serve people. It's not about me, me, me. It's about other people. To see things in the upside-down kingdom, we have to understand that we can't put ourselves first. We have to put others first. We were made in the likeness of God. We have some qualities of him, right? We learned in the first week that he gave us this world to rule over and subdue. He gave us some ability of creation with our mouth. He created the world with our mouth, and we can create with our words as well. He he made us in his likeness. It's part of who we are as human beings. But we have to remember that God is God and we are not. We have to remember that we keep trying to take his job, but he's way better at it than we are. Stop trying to be God and just serve and submit the actual God of the universe who wants to work through you, wants to give you life and life abundantly. We have to start to see things through his eyes. Because when we do, we realize that we already have everything that we need. To be a leader, we have to be a servant first. The people of Nazareth missed their opportunity because they wanted to be the leader without being a servant first. They thought, we raised this kid. He's going to give us jobs in his kingdom. We're going to be ruling alongside of him. We're going to be vindicated against our enemies, and we're going to send them off, running back to Rome. He's going to rain fire down on him, just like all the Bible stories of the past, right? They wanted fame over Jesus, with Jesus. They thought he was going to vindicate them. But to become a leader... You have to be a servant. To truly find life, you have to die to yourself. And they wanted to be served first, healed first, to be able to say, we knew Jesus before he was cool. (laughs) They missed the, the way, the truth, and the life. Just walked through their doors. They couldn't understand that to get back at your enemy, you have to love them. Couldn't even begin to grasp what the Gentiles could possibly deserve a miracle. No chance, right? And they couldn't understand that to become rich, you have to give money away. See, Nazareth was the other side of the tracks, if you know what I mean. It was nowheresville. It's why God sent Mary and Joseph to Nazareth to escape an influential person who wanted to kill Jesus because nobody wanted to go there. (laughs) It's a great place to hide. And They weren't rich people, they weren't influential people, and they stayed that way because they stayed in their pride. They couldn't see the forest through the trees. They couldn't see the Savior standing right in front of them. 
And in this life between two gardens, we have to be willing to lay our lives down for others. We're the richest country in the world. All over the world, people are suffering. Uh, Don't get me wrong, we have our poor, but believe me when I say our even our poor are way richer than the poor in other countries. I have been to the slums of India, and in New Delhi, India, there's literally slums for miles. It's all you can see. Just 12 people living in cardboard boxes this size. Like, that's it. They're all living in it. Kids are running around in rags. They have nothing, less than nothing. And it's Millions of people. South, uh, South America is no different. There are cities where kids are just running around the streets, abandoned, barefoot, wearing rags. They have nothing. They're, they're sharing scraps with the stray dogs on the streets. South Africa is no different. You drive for miles outside of cities, and there's just nothing, just barrenness, Sahara, nothing. And then all of a sudden, a shanty town. It's like miles of just poverty and people living in filth and then nothing again. And all over the world, people are suffering and we have the ability to help fix it. Americans lead the world in giving outside of ourselves. We do. We're really good at it, but we can be so much better. We could open up our eyes to the needs of the people around us and see that they're deserving of Jesus too. The Assemblies of God, our particular denomination, sends millions overseas. We are good at seeing the name of Jesus spread. We have so many missionaries, so many organizations that do this. We just have to get involved in them. In your sermon notes this weekend, I have listed, honestly, I lost count because I was still adding buttons back there right before the service. So a lot of organizations around the world, there's Compassion International that you can sponsor a child and feed a kid on the other side of the world. You can be a part of their education, fixing that culture through its children. It's an amazing organization. Mission SOS are going to unreached people groups and setting up churches that give into their communities, that raise up new generations of believers to give back into their communities. Live Dead is the organization Isaiah is with right now. They also go into unreached people groups around the world, Arab countries that desperately need it. In fact, Arab countries are the the largest growing Christian populations, right? The, The quickest growing Christian populations right now. They need Jesus desperately. They need to be free. Those organizations are seeing that happen. But it's not just across the world. It's here too. It's ministries like Thrive, like the Adams County Rescue Mission, like Tender Care Pregnancy Center, like New Hope Ministries. There's so many of them in Adams and York counties that are helping people here. Every single one of us should be using our God-given gifts and talents to pour into here and abroad. We should be giving into the world. It's one of the four purposes of the church. Not our church, the church. The God-given purposes of the church to worship, discipleship, compassion, and evangelism. Jesus said you will know them by their love. 
He also said, if you love God and hate your brother. Do you love God, though? <laughs> do you? Right? You will know them by their love. I think it was Juliet that said, what you do for the least of these, you've done for me. Jesus had a heart for people. He resisted those who did not have a heart for people. Israel had lost sight of their purpose. Our purpose, our God-given purpose in life is always to pour back in to people. We have unique and individual ways of doing that. It's a good thing. It means we get to serve people no one else does. We see needs no one else does. When you see a need, you should meet it. I, my good friend, a member of this church for many years, Melissa Bishop, passed away almost two weeks ago. Tomorrow, I think, two weeks ago. And she was one of the kindest, most generous, loving people. And all her friends describe her that way over the past... 11, 10 months, we had become close. She got sick around the same time that Aaron did. And we talked often about that and about how she was helping people. She talked about, how do I find the line between enabling and, and helping? The conversations we had often. And in her last moments, she asked her husband for two things. One, that we would offer the salvation message at her service. And two, that we would challenge every single person to do one good thing for someone else every single day. That was her legacy, her only two requests. She wanted to see more people doing good for others. And so Bold and Brave and I, my Wednesday night women's group, we've taken it a step further and we've created Melissa's Challenge. Now, Freedom Alley is fairly used to having me issue challenges, right? This one is very practical because we're not saved by our good works, but other people might be. We can't earn our salvation through good works. Jesus has given it freely, but we can meet people where they are. Do you know most people come to church out of crisis? I'm not going to ask, but if I did, I, were, I would guess that many of you came here out of a crisis. You felt like you needed a change. You needed God. You needed help. And you found it here. If we meet needs first, we have an opportunity to share the gospel. We meet physical needs. We can then meet their spiritual needs. That's what Melissa's challenge is about. Now there's practical ways, challenges that you can accomplish to love people, but they're just suggestions. We came up with a, a long list of suggestions of ways you can help people around you, do good to people around you, but they're just to get you thinking. In fact, we researched and we found out that it takes an average of 66 days to build a habit. On average, 66 days. So we created nine weeks of this challenge. There's lots of different examples of things you can do to give back into the world. And there's two verses for everyone. Believe me, there were more. I could have added a lot more verses because it's all over the word. Love people. Love them genuinely. 
actually love them, it says. Don't just pretend to love them. Actually love them. Look for ways to love them. And I hope that by the end of 66 days, you've challenged yourself every day and you've now built a habit that you can start to see the evil in the world and see what you can do about it, how you can help give in to it. We can't forget why we were blessed in the first place, like Israel did. We can't forget that it's our job to be a light, to be the salt and light of the world. We have to look for something good to do every single day to the people around us and use that as a jumping off point to do a lot more than just one thing every day. It's the only way to bring the kingdom of God down, to live in it now. Yes, we're going to have paradise in the future. Yes, God is coming back and he's going to fix everything. But today, here and now, Jesus taught us the kingdom of God can be here and now if we just love selflessly. It's the only way to live in this life between two gardens. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. Groups where we apply the message we heard this week at Freedom Valley Church. This weekend, I preached our last message in our Between Two Gardens sermon series. And the sermon series has really all been about how do we live this life, this crazy, hectic, unfair life between the Garden of Eden and the perfect world that God has for us in the end. And this week, we talked about that unfair piece. Why does life have to be so unfair? And usually when we're saying that, we mean, why do I have to get all of the bad stuff? Why is, is everybody against me and the world is out to get me and all of that? And really, we should be grateful for what we do have and, and understand that life isn't fair, but that's usually to our favor. Definitely as followers of Jesus, as children of God, he gives us way more blessings than we deserve. And so we should be grateful that life isn't fair and, and understand that we have way more blessings than we deserve and how to count them. It's really an antidote to um, all of the stuff that piles up in our lives and we get really bitter and we get really angry and, and we have to choose to forgive and move on. We also talked about how the kingdom of God is upside down. The, the things that Jesus preached are so opposite of what we think and feel and how we go about life. We want revenge and we want to take it out in the world and we want it to all be about me, me, me. And Jesus preached the opposite of all of those things. And so we wanna look at today in our groups, how can we be grateful for the things that we do have? And how can we give in to our world? How can we make it a better place? How can we serve? The people around us. So I hope that you got a chance to look over the sermon notes this week. There were a bunch of practical ways, um, ministries here locally and across the world that you can help, that you can give back and serve the people.
people in this world and in your life. So have a great discussion, guys. We'll see you next week.